Hi, and welcome back to A Reason for Hope. I'm your host, Mario Costabile, and I am thrilled to have you listening to us today. This podcast is your resource for interviews, catechesis, and candid conversations about our Catholic faith. And a shout out to some of the people that we met on the road this year at some of our events, acknowledging that you've been listening to us and checking out the podcast. And that makes us feel good. And thank you for that. Forward a link to this podcast to anyone that you think it may help. We're available on all podcast platforms. Also, please prayerfully consider going to our donation page and supporting this work. Without you, we would not exist. All you need to do is go to our website at arrayofhope.org and navigate to our donation page. We are a 501c3 non-for-profit organization, so any and all donations are tax deductible. Also, a special shout out and a thank you for our sponsor, The Leo House of New York City. The Leo House is a Catholic guest house for travelers. It's owned and operated by lady, religious, and clergy committed to upholding the spirit of Christian hospitality. When staying in New York City, this is the place to check out and stay at. Today, our guest is Archbishop Salvatore Corleone. Archbishop Corleone graduated in 1978 with a BA in philosophy. He was accepted to study in Rome and continued in the seminary at the Pontifical North American College. He received an undergraduate degree in sacred theology in 1981 from the Pontifical Gregorian University, and the following year returned to San Diego to be ordained and begin his first pastoral assignment. On July 9, 1982, he was ordained a priest. In 1985, he again was sent to Rome, this time to study the new code of canon law. He spent the next four years again at the Gregorian University, completing his doctoral degree. In 1995, he was called once again to Rome for seven years, serving as an assistant at the Supreme Tribunal of the Apostolic Signatura. That's our church's highest canonical court. He was appointed the Archbishop of San Francisco on July 27, 2012, and was installed on October 4, 2012. The Feast of St. Francis of Assisi, at the Cathedral of St. Mary of the Assumption. We are so excited today to have Archbishop Corleone as our guest. Well, Bishop, hello. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us today. It's so nice to see you. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. So I know the, the few times that we've met, uh, I always kid with you and I start talking to you in Italian because we're both Italian, right? And and we've had similar upbringings. You're, you're first generation, is that right? I think you shared that with me? Second generation born in the country. Where are your grandparents from? Uh, Sicily. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. But you speak a little bit of Italian. We spoke Italian a little bit. Where, how'd you learn how to speak Italian? I learned that as an adult. So uh, my generation lost the language. My parents spoke it in the home growing up, the old Sicilian dialect. But, nice. Uh, but everyone spoke to us in English. But I did my uh, studies in Rome, did my theology studies in the seminary, went back to study canon law. Awesome. Then I went a third time to work in the Curia there. So I had plenty of exposure to it. A lot, uh, lot of opportunity to brush up on your Italian. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your formative years. Like, were you raised in a Catholic setting as a young child? Or tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, the world was pretty different back when I was growing up. Um, so we were just kind of a basic Catholic family, you know, I, although I went to public school, so uh, went to our uh, catechism classes, as we called them then, and went to church on Sundays and um, observed, you know, the holy days and 
and the special holidays. So, um, but the whole ethos was very Catholic. Now that I look back in terms of how everything was centered around family and and uh, it was a very tight knit extended family on both sides of my family. I, I knew all of my grandparents, my father's parents lived next door. My mother's parents were about three miles away. So, mm. um, so everything kind of centered around around family and just the basic practice of the faith. And, and where was that? In San Diego. So oh. my, my father was a commercial fisherman. His father was the immigrant fisherman from Sicily. He f actually first landed in San Francisco. My father was born here in San Francisco, but he grew okay. up down in San Diego. Okay. Uh, so how old were you when you, you, know, you, you heard a calling or you wanted to consider becoming a priest? Or what, what point in your life were, were you at when you kind of heard that call or were considering that call? It was around the time I was starting college. Um, my, my faith was always important to me. I never went through a phase of, of falling out of the practice of the faith. I mean, as a teenager, I'd go to church on my own. I'd stop off in church on the way, way going from a school to just be quiet and pray for a while. But I wasn't like thinking about a vocation until I started getting more spiritually serious and thinking about the bigger questions in life. So I was kind of grappling with that in uh, my first year of college. And uh, what were you studying? What were you What were you considering a career back then? Uh, well, I, I I loved music. And oh. I liked math, and I was I was probably better at math than music, and I thought it might be hard. Uh, we had an excellent music program at my school, and I knew what really talented musicians were like. Uh, so I thought I could maybe keep up music on the side. I was going to be a math major. What uh, what instrument did you play? Or do uh, you saxophone? Saxophone. Wow. Uh, do you ever pick it up anymore and kind of jam with the choir? No, I don't jam anymore. <laughs> we had we had a jazz quintet in the seminary, actually, but uh, I haven't played it seriously since then, unfortunately. So, when were you ordained? In nineteen eighty-two. When did you become a bishop? Then in two thousand two, twenty okay. years later. Wow, two thousand. So you've been a bishop for quite some time. Twenty-one years. Yes. Wow. God bless you. So maybe you could share with our listeners, our viewers, what is the actual fundamental role of a bishop? What does a bishop do for the Catholic Church? Uh, the bishop is a um, entrusted with the pastoral care of a, what we call a local church, a diocese. So that involves many things. So bishop being a successor to the apostles is the official teacher of the faith in his local church. Um, so anything that has to do with faith or uh, of teaching or formation, uh, we have a seminary in our archdiocese. Of course, we have a pretty extensive school system. Uh, faith formation programs, so trying to ensure we have good catechists, good teachers, good seminary professors, um, so that the faith is being taught uh, correctly. Uh, uh, so formation of priests, formation of permanent deacons, catechists, uh, assigning priests to parishes, um, being present in 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 the archdiocese and in the different parishes when they have confirmations or other special events. So to bring a to help build up a sense of unity so people understand that being part of the church is is beyond their parish. There really is extended all throughout the local church, the diocese, and beyond that to the universal church. Um, when you first became bishop, uh, I mean, I, I consider bishops, you know, modern day apostles. You know, it's a, it is uh, uh, essentially you are. Uh, and, and so does that... Uh, 
When, when that first happened, you how did it strike you? Did you feel like you know a, a big burden, a big responsibility, uh, maybe not worthy of it? What was what were the feelings that you had initially uh, taking on that role? Well, all of the above. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty uh, you know overwhelming. Um, yeah, and I didn't feel worthy or um, or I kind of never really envisioned myself in that role in that position before, but. I felt, uh, I remember around the time I was consecrated bishop, I felt a very strong sense of communion, um, Mm. especially with those in my family who had gone before me in the faith and had such a big influence on my life. My my grandparents and great aunts, great uncles, and particular cousin who passed away young in life. So um, I felt a real, real strong sense of of that kind of communion. Mm. That's beautiful. So uh, our organization, Array of Hope, I mean, we're really focused on drawing people uh, to the church, strengthening families, uh, showing the beauty of our church through multimedia events, concerts, films, uh, music, and and things like this, our podcast. Um, I mean, as you know, and you've shared, I mean, we're certainly in very interesting times, and, and uh, it, it seems like every minute something is happening or something is changing. Uh, And it seems like the culture is really pushing God away and and really making God less relevant. Um, My question to you is that uh, people who love Jesus, love the church, uh, organizations such as Array of Hope, how how would you encourage us to you know, continue uh, the path, encouraging us to evangelize and, and bring people to Christ. Uh, sometimes it could be really discouraging out here. Evangelization doesn't happen without the one-on-one interpersonal encounter. So we are new evangelization. Yes, we need new methods. We need to use social media. We need to be better at getting the message out there through all, all the channels of communication that we have. But those are really ways to prepare the way for the interpersonal encounter. I've discovered over and over again when, when when there's that kind of an encounter and you get to know each one gets to know the other, something changes. And there's so much bitterness in our world today and judgmentalism, people who are dismissed and and um and canceled out for having different ideas. Uh that can't happen when you know them on on a personal level. So I'd say as much as possible to interact with people and to be as present as possible. Like I was saying about my presence in the archdiocese, you know, people have to sense that the, the bishop is present to them. Um, and, in, and even beyond the parishes, you know, especially in the, in the secular realm as well, people might have different ideas, um, maybe have harsh opinions about bishops and things about the church. Mm-hmm. When there's that interpersonal encounter, it changes everything. Lead by example, in a way, is what you're saying or what I'm hearing you say, right? I mean, that's the best way we could evangelize people to people. Yes, and that show example them. has to be seen and experienced Amen. directly. It seems that we live in a time where there's a lot of confusion in the church and, and even caused or perpetuated by people at the highest levels. Uh, it seems that outspoken bishops uh, have come under investigation, especially those who teach orthodoxy. Uh, we've had uh, Bishop Joseph Strickland here on our on our uh, podcast as well, and, and and he certainly comes to mind. Uh, and yourself, uh, you're an outspoken defender of the constant teaching of the Catholic Church here. Um, what are your views and concerns about these kinds of times? Uh, that uh, deafness and hardness of heart. Uh, so I think 
again, there's so much judgmentalism happening and so much uh, refusal to listen to anyone with a different idea, uh, different opinion. So I think we have to avoid falling into that trap because that's the problem, not the solution. We're only contributed to the problem when we do that. Uh, so, uh, so that's, that's what we're really concerned. It's hard. It's hard to have a conversation anymore. When, if you say something that I disagree with, it means you hate me. Therefore you need to be eliminated. That's kind mm. of the attitude nowadays. We see, we see this happening now on elite uh, university campuses, right? When speakers are shouted down and not allowed to speak. It happened last March nearby here at Stanford university. If you recall that incident, uh, the circuit court uh, judge was to speak on campus. The an organization of the law center had invited him to speak, uh, but a lot of students were mad at him because he issued a decision in a transgender case that they disagreed with. Mm. So they should protest. They shouted him down when he tried to speak. And their dean, a position they call dean of equity and inclusion, supported the students. So, uh, and this is one of the most elite universities in the country and this worries me if, if our future leaders are like this um what does that say about civility in our society you took some uh, dramatic action not too long ago regarding the then the speaker of the house when she was not uh, when she would not present when you you had said that she should not present herself for communion due to her, her unwillingness uh change in her views on abortion and other intrinsic evils um some of my colleagues, you know, uh, people, friends of mine, even family members that did not understand, you know, why you were taking, in, in their view, such a harsh position. Um, can you share with us what the church teaches about this and describe why you did what you did? That was the point of the uh, pastoral letter I had issued about a year and a half before that. Um, I realized, and I've realized this for a very long time since I became a bishop when early on when I was a young bishop this issue surfaced and back then and for long the longest time so many Catholics don't understand what it means to receive communion right it just so many see it as a gesture of welcome friendliness you know uh, they don't understand that it is uh, the outward sign of one's internal adherence to all that Christ teaches through the church and conforming their lives accordingly so this idea of being in a state of grace, properly disposed to receive Holy Communion, and which is why Christ gives us the great gift of his mercy through the sacrament of uh, penance, that um, if we fall out of that state, we can be restored. So Catholics, too, far too many Catholics don't understand that. So the first thing was to help them understand why sometimes it's not proper for people to receive Communion and when it is proper to receive. Uh, so there was that, and so, and then the gravity of the evil of abortion is something that, even that some people don't realize. You know, I don't think they really think about it directly. Uh, so I had to expose how violent it is mm. uh, and and to underscore the, the evil of it. Mm. And uh, then the idea of cooperation with evil, you know, even if, you're not involved in a specific procedure of procured abortion, but you can be an accomplice to it in other ways, like promoting it, um, making it easily readily available with the intention of doing that, not voting for some legislation that might have a positive effect. And this is a negative side effect. Um, but intentionally doing that is a participation in that evil. 
And then for uh, Catholics in public life, there's a question of scandal. Scandal means giving an example that can lead other people into sin or into error about the matter. And, you know, I've, I've been asked that this was a, a secular journalist asked me before I issued that, but I was speaking out a lot about it. He said, well, can someone be a good Catholic and support abortion? The fact that someone asked that question shows that scandal is being caused. There should be no question that we don't believe in killing babies, whether after they're born or before they're born. It'd be like asking that, is, is it possible to be a good Catholic and kill a newborn baby? So, uh, so there was that question of scandal and that was, that's been very much a problem. So all of those factors were coming together that, uh, and, and I had a whole, whole process of trying to, yeah, you know, yeah. work this out pastorally before yeah. I made that. I basically, I had no other option at that point. Today's podcast is brought to you by a truly unique destination in the heart of New York City, the Leo House. Beyond the confines of a traditional hotel, the Leo House beckons as an enchanting oasis, seamlessly blending American history, Catholic spirituality, and a level of hospitality you won't find anywhere else. Whether you're a seasoned traveler in search of an unparalleled experience or a local yearning for a unique getaway within the city, the Leo House promises an extraordinary escape from the average and the ordinary. What sets the Leo House apart is not just its fascinating history, but its unique opportunity that offers all its guests, regardless of their religious affiliation or background, including the chance to attend mass and confession right inside the hotel. Pretty amazing. For more details to embark on an extraordinary stay, contact the Leo House at 212-929-1010 or visit their website at theleohouse.com. So if you're wondering how you can help this ministry, rating and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help others hear it, as well as sharing it with your friends and your family. So join us in this mission by rating, reviewing, or sharing this episode with someone you think needs to hear it. And we want to thank you for your continued support of A Reason for Hope podcast. Yeah, no, it was beautiful, and I'm glad you did it. It was very courageous. And uh, But, you know, the public and, and uh, the media, they only see the, 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 the last thing that you did. And, and, and the, of course... You experienced a lot of backlash on that, but we certainly supported you. I, I think um, a lot of it is rooted as just the lack of understanding of what the Eucharist truly is. So they think it's, it's you know it's no big deal. It's just you know a symbol. And I know that the church is making a strong concerted effort with the Eucharistic revival. We had Bishop Andrew Cousins on as well, and and we're very engaged in that effort here at Array of Hope. We're part of that, and we're endorsed by them. Uh, and I, I, how do you feel? Uh, well, what are you guys doing it over there in your diocese? And I think this is really good because it's drawing attention to the very core and summit of our church, right? The teachings of our church, the Eucharist. So I think it's really good. Uh, what, what are your thoughts and, and, and how are you sharing it over there in your diocese? We have something very exciting and unique this year. This is the parish year. Last year was the diocesan year. Now we're focused on the parish year. So mm -hmm. um, we're having a whole series of lectures and prayer and discussions with uh, Dr. Scott French of the Maja Center, who's very well versed about the Eucharistic miracles and about the evidence of the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin, which is kind of related to these miracles. Mm -hmm. Being an uh, emergency doctor, uh, he can 
analyze this scientifically, these Eucharistic miracles, and explain about the heart tissue that's found on these hosts, that's about right. the white blood cells, which means that they're they're alive. White blood cells cannot exist outside the body. So these are living cells, and he can explain all of this scientifically. And then he knows the theology as well, and he weaves that in. So uh, we've already begun rolling, and then we have a uh, thank God, a very generous uh, parishioner here in the Archdiocese is willing to support all of this financially. So he will be here um, probably about half a week all throughout this year to speak in parishes, in schools, uh, to speak to groups, and then have a smaller encounter over a meal where there can be some Q&A and more discussion, and then, then an hour of adoration with confession available. So uh and we're hoping to reach every single parish every single school in the archdiocese with this message that uh to counter this false narrative that science has disproven religion mm -hmm. it's really the other way around what we're learning from science confirms what we know by faith about the real presence about the existence of the soul and its existence beyond the death of the body mm -hmm. about the existence of god even mm -hmm. we have so much scientific the data to confirm what we already know by faith, which makes sense, right? God yeah. created it all, uh, so it's all going to be consistent with each other. So this is something very exciting for us, and then it will culminate in uh, in May when uh, you know the four Eucharistic processions across the country. The one starting from the West Coast will start at our cathedral, yes. St. Mary's Cathedral here in San Francisco. We're commissioning a new mass through the liturgical institute we have here, the Benedict the Sixteenth Institute. For sacred music and divine worship we could be been commissioning new masses of sacred music with specific themes so we'll, we're commissioning a mass for eucharistic renaissance that will premiere at that mass to begin the eucharistic procession from the west coast and you're talking about the sciences i mean the miracles that exist i mean the shroud of torrent forget about it i mean you, you even scientists don't understand how that happened and the blood that's on the shroud is the same blood type that appears it's on the eucharistic miracles i mean there's so many things that the culture and even Catholics do not know. So this is great that you're doing that. Um, I think it's communicating. I mean, the Catholic Church needs to do a better job at communicating these truths. So people will be drawn to the, the truth and realize that, you know, the, the teachings of the church are valid. Christ is real. The Eucharist is real. So I'm so I'm thrilled to hear that you're doing all that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, this next part that I want to ask you, uh, I'm going to start with Mamma Mia. Uh, and the reason why I'm saying that is let's talk about the Senate on Synodality. Is that okay? Because I think there's a lot of uh, 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 confusion, concern. Um, I mean, it seemed like the, the Senate, there's so much controversy already, and it seems that the intensity is getting hotter and hotter. And now that it's here, it's like... Uh, boiling over it. And I know that a large majority of Catholics are oblivious and don't really know what it is that's going on. But we want to use this program, number one, not to scandalize or put people in a state of fear or worry, but we want to inform and we want to encourage that hope. So just so you know where I'm coming on, coming from, Bishop. Um, so what is your thoughts on, on the Senate? Maybe you could share what it is with our viewers and listeners. And uh, what do you think? The idea of synods has always been a part of the church. Synods are church leaders coming together to address the issues of the time. It's it's most um, 
its biggest, most significant and um, authentic form of teaching is in the ecumenical council. But there are also local synods of bishops, uh, regional synods and provincial that come together. Dioceses have always held synods when they bring uh, leaders in the diocese together to address whatever issues they might be confronting, how better to evangelize and that. So, so this idea has always been, been around, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, and um, Pope Paul VI started the, what we call the, the Synod of Bishops after the Second Vatican Council, um, the regular ordinary Synod every three years. And there have been some extraordinary ones as well. They pick a topic and there, there's a whole process. Um, right, drafting a um, sort of some guidelines going into it, and from there a working document. Uh, each Episcopal conference, so the bishops of each country select their representatives to that synod, and they discuss whatever the theme happens to be: family life, uh, priestly formation, consecrated life, uh, whatever it is. Uh, so uh, this this synod on synodality is being approached in a different way with a lot of lay participation, having a vote equal to that of the bishops participating at, at the synod. That's never happened before, right, Bishop? No, no. It is the bishop, the bishop is the one, the bishop is the one most in a position to understand the realities of his local church. And I first, my eyes actually were first opened about when Eons ago, when I was a priest, I was secretary to the bishop of the diocese for a year. So I traveled with him around to the different parishes. And then all the more so when I first became a bishop, I was an auxiliary bishop of, of the diocese that I was from. And all the more so I had encounters with not just the parishes, but all kinds of organizations and associations doing all kinds of things. So the bishop really has the view of the local church. He understands that. And then he interacts with officials at the Vatican. So he understands the scene, if he's astute enough anyway, of the vision of the, the universal church. Uh, many bishops have studied in places where there are people from all over the world, whether that's in Rome or one of these other major international universities, like in Louvain or studied in another country. So, so the bishop's best in that position. Uh, so uh, the bishop, if he's doing his job well, we'll have the perspective of the lay faithful in his diocese and can bring that to any kind of a synod or encounter with other bishops. Um, so, so this is, yeah, this has never been done before. And, uh, to be honest, what worries me, uh, yes, all kinds of things are being opened up now for discussion. What worries me most, those, the self-referentiality, all the talk is about us as a church. I'm not hearing the name of Jesus Christ mentioned very often. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all about Jesus and bringing people to Jesus so he can be a part of their lives. He's the one way. He's the one savior of the world. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, I'm I'm concerned that people are are taking their eyes off of Jesus and forgetting that. And plus, they're discussing a, a lot of things that were never discussed ever before. I mean, the women deacons and uh, same-sex blessings and uh, um, a lot of areas that uh, seem to be heretical uh, years gone past. I mean, do you want to comment on anything like that, those those kind of areas that they're breaching? We really don't know what's 
what's going to happen. I don't know how serious a lot of people are talking about these things. I don't know how seriously they're going to be addressed, if at all. I don't know. But I mean, the church teaching is very clear. And yeah. um, the worst thing the church can do if she wants to retain credibility in the world is change her teaching. Because then if it changes one way, why can't it change another way? What's true today is not true tomorrow. So uh, I don't know what worse could be done in terms mm -hmm. of loss of credi credibility. Understanding how to convey those teachings in a changed world, yes. But my, re my experience, and let's read the signs of the times, as I often say, what is classically Catholic works, where is the church alive, young, and growing? It's where what's classically Catholic has been embraced, whether that's in worship, in education, or in uh, religious life. Uh, people are thirsting for, for the truth. And with the churches, um, all, all of the means we have to expose people to truth, beauty, and goodness is leads to that encounter with the truth who is Christ. So um, I say, let's do what's classic. It attains the status of classic because it's withstood by definition it's withstood the test of time it it's beautiful in every age uh, it's universal uh, so um so it works yeah yeah i mean um and i try to um I, I, a ray of hope is obviously uh, an organization that uh, evangelizes to the culture and, and and that's what we do we proclaim the teachings of the church the in a bold, exciting, attractive way. And when people come to me and they, they, they share, you know, they're worried about the church, they're worried about the direction that the church is going in. Uh, I think all that we can do as a laity, uh, someone like ourselves is just like we talked about earlier, right, Bishop? We just have to be an example. We just have to be positive. Certainly we have to pray and fast for the church and, 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 um, be the example uh, of what the church represents in in our in our own desire to be as holy as we can. I mean, is there any other advice? I mean, I, sometimes I just don't know what to say to people when because there are people in my circle that are you know everything's gloom, you know. And I said, look, you know, the the gates of hell will not prevail, right? You know, so we have to remain positive and not worry and not think about that. I mean, Padre Pio says, you know, don't worry, right? You know, um, what are your thoughts about that? We have to be honest. We're at the end of something. We're at the end of the, we're, we're witnessing a civilizational collapse right now, but the church isn't going away. The church has been through civilizational collapse before. Um, civilization collapsed when the Roman empire fell and there was, yeah, a lot of confusion and disarray, but the church kept the flame of faith and learning and, and pastoral care alive during those very trying times and what they call late antiquity and uh, built up um, communities, especially in the monastery. That was um, uh, St. Benedict's legacy, right? Mm. The Western monasticism. The monasteries were centers of, of not just prayer, but of learning. Those uh, illuminated manuscripts, you know, I tell these confirmation students about if they're reading an ancient text, how is it the Bible or whatever, not just the Bible, secular text as well, they're 2,000 years old or older. Mm -hmm. How is it you have it in your hand today when there's a civilizational collapse? It, from the time Rome fell to the invention of the printing press was 1,000 years. Well, wow. 
We can think a thousand years of monks across the face of Europe who are transcribing texts to keep learning going. Mm -hmm. And they developed into these beautiful illuminated manuscripts. Truth, beauty, and goodness all work together, which is why they also became centers of pastoral care, of health care, of of teaching, uh, of research, uh, developing the scientific method of inquiry as we know it today. Mm -hmm. So that took many centuries. Right? It took many centuries for the church to rebuild civilization and rebuild it in a Christian way. So, no, we're not going to see a rebuilding of civilization in our lifetime. But if we stay true to God and hand on the faith to the next generation, and they do the same, and they do say, maybe centuries from now, we will be able to rebuild civilization in a, in a, in a Christian way. Hmm. The important thing is to do all for the glory of God and not the glory of ourselves. Right. I mean, the true joy lies in Him, right? We have to focus on 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 Him. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you want to share with our viewers and listeners, Bishop? I mean, it's uh, it's been great, you know, catching up with you and and sharing a little bit with you. I I I, I think the the voice of a, a true good bishop is so important to our culture, and I've always thought that. And I, I we pray for you here all the time, every day, at a ray of hope here for our for our clergy, our bishops, our cardinals, our, our priests. Um, uh, so know that you're very well supported. We love you. Uh, we we, we, um, we want to encourage you. Um, we want to let you know that, you know, it, I, I, you know, you're human. I'm sure there are times that you feel defeated. I'm sure there are times that you feel lonely and wondering like, what's going on? You throw your hands up, right? Please know that we're there for you. Um, uh, is is there anything uh, support that maybe you could share to our viewers and listeners regarding these times? Well, I would say I understand about they're feeling the doom and gloom because, like you said, I get into those moods myself. But right. then I have to remember there is also a lot of good happening that people don't see. Mm. Um, well, one thing I mentioned, my Benedict XVI Institute, we're That's commissioning right. these new masses, and they're they're beginning a, a renaissance of sacred beauty. You know, we had the Mass of the Americas was the first one, the twin tribute to Our Lady Guadalupe and Our Lady Immaculate Conception. That was, it's it's classical sacred music, but it weaves in the sounds and melodies of the popular songs the Mexican people sing to Our Lady Guadalupe. Yep. Uh, we had a Mass for the, the homeless, that now we're expanding the Mass, we're calling it for the forsaken to include, we're going to develop a, uh, a CD and have a hymn for the Ukrainian martyrs as a part of it. We had a mass for the World Day of the Sick, the Mess de Malade, and it's it's using sacred music. Yeah, again, this idea of what adding to the classical repertoires, using the tradition, but in a way that reflects uh, themes of today. But it's within that tradition, so it attains that sense of timeless beauty. So yeah. I often make a comparison. So music is the sense of sound. I make a comparison using the sense of sight with church architecture. Here in, in the West and Southwest, we have the mission church architecture, right? That when the Franciscans and others came later came here to evangelize, they didn't say mass in the camps, right? Or in the open air, how the, in, the Indians, indigenous population, they built churches. Yeah, They built a traditional Catholic church, but in an architectural style that reflects the culture here. And a whole style of art developed around that. So that's how we we take what's classical and we do it in a way that's appropriate to the time and the culture, but in a sense that that is timeless. So a lot of good things are happening there. Um, 
I see a revival of seminary life, especially in our own seminary and the, the young men who come, many of them are wounded by the culture, but they're very sincere and they're very serious. They love the faith. They don't want any compromises in the faith. So I, I see, and we have, we have a lot of great seminary professors too nowadays. So I, I see hope on the horizon yes. uh, for that. And then when I visit the parishes, there's a lot of good going on in the parishes that people don't see serving the poor in their community, mm-hmm. taking all kinds of initiatives. So, yeah. So, um, just try to look, look more closely to yes. see where some good things are happening. Hope is in the cracks. It's out there. And I, I, I do want to affirm what you said about, um, the music program. I, I saw that it's beautiful. We'll put it in the comment section for us so people can find out about it and share it. And I do also want to affirm and, and, uh, validate we're we're doing a film that's going to be really shortly on vocations and we followed and profiled young seminarians that became priests and there's some amazing young men that are becoming priests so there's hope right there that are love christ love the church love the eucharist so i want to share with our viewers and listeners that there is really a beautiful resurgence happening that uh, like you had shared many people are not seeing uh, and it could be very encouraging for young families to, if they haven't been in church in a while, to come back. Uh, it may not be what they remember it, you know, and it's a lot of stuff going on. Amen, Bishop? Amen. Yes, thank you. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much for sharing your time. I know how valuable your time is, and I truly appreciate it. I hope to see you next time, next year. We always seem to see each other once a year, and uh, uh, God bless you and your parish and, and your diocese uh, and everything that you do. Right. Okay. Thank you. God bless you too. Keep up the good work. Thank you. We are so glad that you join us for this podcast. I want to remind you, please, please share this podcast with as many people as you can. The more people hear it, the more our Lord can heal and save. Stay connected by following us on your favorite social media platform at R4H Podcast. That is the letter R, the number four, and the letter H Podcast. Also, check out our YouTube page where you can see these interviews on video and see what we look like. And remember, in a world where things can be dark, Christ is the light, and there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next week, peace. Peace.